thanks for being here this morning. I'm going to pick up an axe where we left off a few weeks ago. Uh, man, a lot has happened since we left the book of Acts. But uh, this week's been crazy, crazy week. Uh, people always ask me, you know, how's it going in ministry? And uh, I always say it ebbs and flows. Like there's weeks when there's nothing that happens, then there's weeks that just like it all piles in. And this is one of those weeks where everything just kind of piled in. Uh, last Sunday, uh, I'm sure most of you know, um, Keith's middle daughter, Kristen, had a seizure on Sunday afternoon, and it changed their whole week. Just like everything's cool Easter Sunday morning, they were doing like an Easter egg hunt and one text message and everything just changed the whole week. But uh, she had a tumor on her frontal lobe, and Friday they did surgery to remove that tumor. It was supposed to take a three to six hours of surgery, and it was an hour and a half surgery, and everything went great. So uh, Kristen is still there. She's probably going to hopefully be released on Tuesday. She's doing exceptionally well. Obviously, they're testing the tumor, and we're waiting for results on that, and we're just trusting the Lord the whole way. So, and then, uh, I think we had five, I, around me, in my world, there were five deaths this week. So, uh, inside this group, uh, Charlie Ward's mother, I just saw Vicky walk in, so how's, how's the family I got a funeral. I'm not doing the funeral day, but I'm attending a funeral today of a lady, a dear, dear lady from my previous church. Her, her husband was the chairman of the search committee that brought me to Indianapolis. So that was back in 1989, but uh, Linda Bloss passed away on Easter Sunday as well. And so her funeral is today, uh, for those of you that know her. So it's been a interesting week full of full of ministry and full of, and I, I say all that because we get to chapter 27 of Acts and Paul is making his way to Rome. If you remember where we left off with Paul, uh, he, just to kind of go back, he was in Caesarea and he they basically said to him, don't go to, don't go to Jerusalem because they're going to kill you if you go back to Jerusalem. Because of what you're teaching in comparison to what they believe and teach. The Jews believe in the law and teach the law. And Paul's like saying, no, you just need to believe in Jesus. And a Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you and teaches you how to live your life. And you don't need the law anymore because Christ fulfilled the law. That's the net net of... And they're like, if you go and say to the Jews, you know, you need Jesus and not the law... They're going to kill you. And so he went to Jerusalem, and uh, he went on trial and everything, and they ended up sending him to Caesarea before basically imprisoning him for two years, two years into this uh, house arrest type thing where people could come visit him and everything in, in Caesarea. He went through two different governors, Felix and Festus, and now he faced King Agrippa, and King Agrippa's like, I, I have nothing to charge this man with. But Paul knew if he got released that he was going to be killed. So he says, I'm going to appeal to Caesar. And as soon as he says, I'm going to appeal to Caesar, 
it was out of King Agrippa's hands because now he has to go to, as a Paul's considered a Roman citizen as citizens of many areas. Uh, he has to go to Rome with them paying for the trip, which he's been wanting to get to Rome. And so uh, now he is going to be protected. He's going to be protected as he goes to Rome. <coughs> so on the map, you see he we basically went to went from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Caesarea is a, a seaport on the Mediterranean Sea. But let me show you something that's really interesting. Uh, obviously, we just got back from Israel. This is my son, Ethan, and Ike. They're standing on the Mediterranean Sea, which was considered Herod's palace. Now, they haven't seen this, what I'm about to show you. But this was just them like two weeks ago standing there on the Mediterranean Sea. But let me zoom out and show you an aerial shot. This is what is actually looks like this aerial shot. It's a, it's a, a drone shot of the Mediterranean Sea. And you can see uh, on the far left is the Hippodrome, which is where they did chariot races. In the uh, top top left, there, there's that amphitheater. If you've watched that video of me walking into the amphitheater and sitting there and teaching that's the exact amphitheater we were sitting in. But if you look, Corey and Ike and Ethan were standing at that one wall just right of the grassy area. And they were looking out over what was King Herod's palace. Now, let me show you what it actually looked like back in the day. I'm going to slowly paint a picture of what King Herod's palace look like in the day is that not crazy so no i didn't draw that it's impressive isn't it that actually came out of logos uh the software that i used to do all my studying uh and it has a little slider thing that you can slide and uh it's really kind of cool but this is where paul was he was in king herod's palace when he was imprisoned and he basically this is where everything happened with King Agrippa and everything else and it's just a really cool that what's underneath what you saw underneath go go back Jim but there that was actually a swimming pool that was made out of the Mediterranean Sea in King Herod's palace King this was King Herod the Great who was like came around in like 40 BC and then he died somewhere Somewhere around 3 or 4 B.C., you know, he's the same one that was going to kill all the babies in Bethlehem and, and things like that. But he was the great architect. And this is where Paul was, just so you know. But we are now, he's getting ready to leave this place after being there two years. And he's finally getting to go to Rome. So here we are in Acts chapter 27, and verse 1, it says, When it was decided that we were to sell to Italy, <laughs> you, you, we've literally said Paul's written Romans and you know the Romans are this, but hardly any one of you relate Romans to Italy. Like, we're talking about Rome, Italy. This is where Paul is desiring to go. Uh, it says, when it was decided that we were to set sail, this is the first time since chapter 21 that Luke has included himself in first person in explaining this story. 
Paul was facing his Jewish counterparts in Jerusalem, and Luke was his personal physician at this point. It says, they handed over Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion named Julius of the Imperial Regiment. That would be Rome. And uh, so now Julius has these other prisoners, and he's got Paul. The difference between Paul and the other prisoners is the other prisoners were going to Rome to be killed. They were going to die. Paul was going to Rome to go to trial. He's different than the rest of them. Now, think about this. Paul gets on a boat with other prisoners that are going to die. Right? You have a captive audience. Where are you going to go when you die? To heaven is exactly right. And that's exactly what Paul's telling these prisoners. He's telling these prisoners, it doesn't say that here, but... You know Paul. There's, there's no way that he got on a boat with a bunch of men that were going to die, about to die, and him not tell the gospel to him. Verse 2, it says, When he had boarded a ship of Adrametrium, we put to sea, intending to sail to ports along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. This was now Paul's personal attendant. Somebody that, I mean, Paul had become a big deal. And he had his own personal attendant. He had his own physician that traveled with him. And he was a prisoner. Think about that for a second. It says that, um, it doesn't say that Aristarchus, who's his personal attendant, actually went to jail because he was in trouble. But we know when Paul writes his letter in Colossians that in chapter 4 he says Aristarchus is a fellow prisoner. He's a fellow prisoner. So he's hanging out with Paul in Rome. It says, the next day we put into Sidon. That's 80 miles in one day they went on this boat. It says, and Julius treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go to his friends to receive their care. So they pull into Sidon. And Paul's got the freedom to just go hang out with the people that he's already ministered to on previous missionary trips. Hey, good to see you. I'm going to Rome to go to trial. Da, 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 da. Let me tell you what Jesus has done. It says, when he had put out to sea from there, we sailed along the northern coast of Cyprus because the winds were against us. After sailing through the open sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we reached Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. So let's talk about the ship for a second. The first ship that they're on, they're on this coastal ship. It's a small ship. They've got prisoners. Julius is on there. And they're basically, it's a small ship, so it just goes around the coast. Now, they're going to be put on an Alexandrian ship. What's the difference in the ship? Well, it can actually go across major waters, the Mediterranean Sea. It comes from the name Alexander the Great, who basically was, you know, had control of Egypt and everything. And so this ship was an Egyptian ship, and it carried a lot of grain and a lot of passengers. It was a big ship. So they transferred all those people from this coastal ship 
to this big Alexandrian ship. Rome actually depended on Egypt for its grain supply. And so the government, the Roman government, gave special attention to these ships, and that's why they were able to get on it. It says, Sailing slowly for many days with difficulty, we arrived off Nidus. That's another 130 miles. 80 miles one day, 130 over several days. Since the wind did not allow us to approach it, we sailed along the south side of Crete, off of Salmoni. With still more difficulty, we sailed along the coast and came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Now let me pull up a map and show you where they've gone. You can actually see that they started in Caesarea in the bottom right. They went to Sidon, which is along the coast. They came up here and it says they went to the north side of Cyprus. So this is the you see two islands in the, in the Mediterranean Sea. Cyprus is the one on the east, and Crete is the one on the west. It says well, they went up on the north side of Cyprus, and they kept along the coast. They stayed along the Asian coast. This is now Turkey. For those of you that are curious, this is modern-day Turkey. Here, Sidon is like you've got Lebanon just north of Israel, and you've got Syria along this coast right here. So they get up here, and they get to Myra in Lycia, and this is where they actually change boats. They change boats, and now the green line takes them over here, and they go around these islands, and they get to Crete. In the south side of Crete, there's this port called Fair Havens, and that's where they are right now. We're just showing you the journey that Paul's taking. And then verse 9 says, By now much time had passed, And the voyage was already dangerous. Since the Day of Atonement, this is our marker, since the Day of Atonement was already over, Paul gave his advice and told them, Men, I can see that this voyage is headed toward disaster and heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. When I say the Day of Atonement is our marker, We know that the Day of Atonement, which usually either fell in September or October, so now it's the fall. It's the fall of 60 A.D. This is like 30 years after Jesus. And every sailor knew that sailing was difficult. If you want to go on a cheap cruise, if you want to go on a cheap cruise, when is the time to go? During hurricane season in September, October. I would pay more to go on hurricane season because I like the adventure. We've actually been on two cruises where we've had that adventure. And uh, it was an adventure. Uh, So they know sailing during this time is, is like very difficult all the way up to November. And it's pretty much impossible from... November to February, because now you're in the winter months. And Paul's literally, he's a passenger, he's a prisoner, he's respected, he's, he's well known on the ship. There's 276 people on the ship, because he says that later on in the chapter. He's respected, and he's like, guys, let me tell you something. If you choose to go there now, you might as well just like write everybody off. 
Well, why does Paul know this? Well, one, you know that Paul has experience because we've already studied one letter that he wrote to Corinth, and in that letter he's like, I've been shipwrecked three times. I've been here. I know what's about to happen. There's a storm coming. It's that season. It's going to happen, you guys. The other thing is, Paul's talking with God. And God's given Paul wisdom. And all he's doing is he's going to the captain of the boat and saying, hey, look, let me, let me give you some advice. If you choose to do this outside of God's will, you're on your own. And it's going to lead to destruction. But Paul, he was kind of viewed as the backseat driver. So naturally, they chose to go against Paul and honestly, God's will. Verse 11, it says, But the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than what Paul said. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided to set sail from there, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix, a harbor on Crete, facing the southwest and northwest, and to winter there. So what were the factors that govern into Julius's decision? To begin with, obviously, Fair Havens was not comfortable. It was not suitable for their ship to stay there in the winter storm. Phoenix had a more sheltered harbor there. It was safe. There was food there. There was there was all sorts of protection there. But now Julius is li- listening to the expert advice of the pilot and the captain, the owner of the ship, the master and the owner. And they advise, hey, let's just go ahead. We can get there. Surely they could cover 40, 40 miles. 40 miles safely. We can do this. So the majority, three to one, decided to sail. Verse 13. When a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they had achieved their purpose. A gentle south wind. The captain, the owner, and Julius all turned to Paul and looked at him and just smiled. We've got a gentle south wind taking us. We're good. But the next verse, they weighed the anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. But before long, a fierce wind called the Northeaster Northeaster rushed down from the island. Now, in the Greek, in the Latin word, that Northeaster is actually called a typhoon. So this gentle southern wind that they smiled about all of a sudden has now turned into a typhoon. Who's smiling now? I don't think Paul's like smiling back at him. He's got like this face of concern like, I tried to tell you. I tried to tell you. Verse 15, it says, Since the ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Basically, it's saying they drifted because they couldn't steer. And they ended up 25 miles, 23, 25 miles to the south. After running under the shelter of a little island called Kata, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. You know what the skiff is? They've got this big grain boat 
but in the back they were towing this little boat that they could get to different islands and make trades and stuff so the skiff is this little boat behind the big ship let me show you the map of, of where they went they were obviously on uh, Fairhaven and they got 40 miles to Phoenix that's where they were trying to get to but they didn't they ended up just north of Cotta 23 miles south of Crete they're trying to get all the way over here to Malta because they're trying to get up here to Italy which is up here but they're not getting far after hoisting it up they're talking about the skiff they pulled the skiff up out of the water they used ropes and tackle and girded the ship. What does that mean? They literally wrapped the big ship in chains and ropes. Why would they do that? To gird it up like a girdle so they keep it all together. They're afraid this ship is like going to fall apart. You ever been in a plane when you experience turbulence and you go, how's this plane going to hold together? They're having the same thought with that ship. It's like they literally wrapped it in chains and ropes, fearing that they would run, run aground on the Sirtis. That's a whole body of water that was like very shallow and had a bunch of sandbars. If we don't get control of this and sail north, we're going to end up in Sirtis on the sandbars. It says they lowered the drift anchor... And in this way, they were driven along. Because we were being severely battered by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo the next day. What does that mean? They started throwing things overboard. we got to get control of this thing, so whatever's heavy, get rid of it. It says, On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. For many days, neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. Now, think about that for a second. You're here in Indiana in February, and there's no sun, there's no stars, there's no moon. But if that's what you're dependent upon to sail and to guide you and to direct you, what's happened to them? They're lost at sea. Like, they have nothing to show them. Where, you ever been out at sea, and all you see is water? There's no, they don't have the compasses. They don't have all that stuff. They, they're lost. They had no direction whatsoever. It says, finally, all hope, there's always hope, remember that. All hope was fading that we would be saved. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up among them and said, You men should have followed my advice. There he said it. You should have listened to me. You should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. Now, I urge you, I plead with you, I beg of you to take courage because there will be no loss of any of your lives but only of the ship. Can you imagine... Paul saying that to the crew and to the people. Hey, hang on. This ship's not going to last, but you're going to last. What? How's that work? For last night, 
an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. Relax. Chill out, you know, that whole thing. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. And indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So an angel appears to Paul in the middle of the night and says, Paul, you're going to Rome. You're going to stand before Caesar. And all these people that are with you are going to be safe. Now try to convince the boat of that. Right? I had a dream. I had a vision. An angel of the Lord came to me and said, hey, we're good. We're good. Convince them of that. He says, so take courage, men, because I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me. But we have to run aground on some island. Now, they're in the middle of this major crisis. And let me tell you something. A crisis does not make a person. A crisis shows what a person is made of, and it tends to bring true leadership to the front. You know what I'm talking about. There's crises that happen all around us. And out of those crises will come a leader. There's a man who was a comedian and a TV star. Who's leading a country in the bravest way of all by walking the streets and saying, You're not going to take my country down? He's literally risen up out of a crisis and proved his leadership. Paul is literally doing the same thing on this ship. He's gently rebuking the centurion and the owner and the captain for ignoring his warning. But but just in a a short time, they're going to soon discover that God has spared all of them because of Paul. Because of Paul. Not just because of his leadership, but because of who he was to God. Verse 22 that we just read through 26, Paul literally shared God's word with him. Verse 27, it says, When the 14th night came, we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea. And about midnight, the sailors thought they were approaching land. So during this two weeks that they've been at sea, the ship's been driven over 500 miles off course, and it's now adrift in the Adrian Sea. It's actually now called the Ionian Sea. Don't confuse that with the Adriatic Sea. Verse 28, it says, They took soundings and found it to be 120 feet deep. When they had sailed a little further and sounded again, they found it to be 90 feet deep. Then, fearing we might run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. They're doing all this at nighttime. They're just kind of feeling their way around. And then we got to wait. We can't go any further. Some sailors tried to escape the ship. They had let down the skiff into the sea, pretending that they were going to put out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, 
These guys that are getting ready to get on that skiff and take off, unless they stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Because God said, all of the people will be saved. And if they bail, once again, you're taking that out of God's will. Then the soldiers cut the ropes holding the skiff and let it drop away. Like, okay, we'll just get rid of the skiff. That way they can't leave. So now in these last verses, Paul's not only shared God's word with them, but he's now warned them. Verse 33, it says, When it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. Okay, wait. So they haven't eaten for 14 days, but they've got food on board? Why have they not eaten? Because they're scared to death and they didn't feel like eating. They could have been fasting, asking God to save them. Yeah, they didn't have time to eat. It says, today's the 14th day that you've been waiting, going without food, haven't eaten nothing, so I urge you to take some food. For this is for your survival, since none of you will lose a hair from your head. Let me remind you, God said you're going to be okay. After he said these things and had taken some bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And after he broke it, he began to eat. They were all encouraged. You know what it's like when you're on an empty belly and you finally get food. The hangry goes away. They were all encouraged and took food themselves. In all, there were 276 of us on the ship. When they had eaten enough, they began to enlighten the ship by throwing the grain overboard into the sea. Okay, so now we've got enough food in our belly. We're going to get rid of the grain, and God said that he's going to protect us. So now, not only has Paul given them the word, God's, he's warned them, but now he's setting a good example for them. God's given us food. He's taken care of us. He's promised us this, and we're going to pray and give thanks to him. But also this. Caring for their health was a big part of it. Like, if a crisis happens, one of the things that I will always say is, make sure you eat, make sure you sleep. Make sure you eat, make sure you sleep. You have to remain healthy to get you through the crisis. And there's there's times when one dedicated believer can literally change the whole atmosphere of a situation simply by trusting God and listening to Him and making their faith visible. Okay, here it comes. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land by sighted a, but sighted a bay with a beach. They planned to run the ship ashore if they could. Let's get this thing going as fast as we can, and we'll just run this thing up on the beach. And after cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea. And at the same time, loosening the ropes that held the rudders, then they hoist, hoisted the foresail to the wind and headed for the beach. But they struck a sandbar and ran the ship aground. The bow jammed fast and remained immovable while the stern began to break up the pounding of the waves. 
you see what they did? They got this thing going so fast, and they ran into a sound a sandbar, and the and the bow stopped, but the stern just kept coming and just crushed the ship. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that no one could swim away and escape. Well, if we got to make sure these prisoners don't get away, they're going to die anyway. But the centurion kept them from carrying out their plan because he wanted to save Paul. If they're going to kill the prisoners, they're going to kill Paul too. And we can't let Paul die. And so he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to follow, some on planks and some on debris from the ship. In this way, everyone safely reached the shore. So now I think about this. Here we are at the end of this chapter. There's only one more chapter in Acts. He's almost he's getting to Rome eventually. Fourth shipwreck. But now he's given him the word of God through an angel. He's warned them. He set an example. Now he's rescued them because of who he is. I I think sometimes um, we or people can create the storms just by our disobedience, by not following God's will, just doing our own thing. I think sometimes we can create the storms. Like, However, for Paul right here, this was not his fault. But really, the centurion and the leadership of the, the ship that got him into this predicament. But Paul, like us, sometimes we suffer as a group because of other people's unbelief and faith. And we get in hairy situations. And then the storms, the storms that come our way right here, they have a way of revealing the true character of the person. Some of the sailors tried to escape. They tried to run. But the centurion, he's the one that's like, if God says this is going to happen, we need to stay right here all together. It showed the character of those on the ship. And then, I'll say this, even the worst storms, you're going through a storm it cannot hide God. He's there. It's like Peter walking on the water and the, he took his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink. When the storm's coming and it's swirling, swirling all around us, sometimes we just like lose sight of it. And God's like, no, don't lose sight of what I've called you to do. Paul received this word of assurance from God. And God overruled the leadership of that boat by using Paul. And then the last thing I'll say is this. Uh, those storms that come along and those crises that come along, Paul used it to show who his God was. Yeah, uh, you've heard me saying here, I'll, I'll run to crisis. I'll run to crisis 
uh, I build relationships with people based upon waiting for the storm to come. And it's not because I'm the Savior. It's I know who the Savior is. And I want to point these people to Jesus. In the middle of the storm. He's there. He's willing. He's able. It takes faith. It takes trust. But God will prove himself in the middle of the storm. Paul knew how to pray. He had faith in God. And he was absolutely in touch with the Almighty. And God came through and saved them all. It's a matter of trust. So Lord, today, um, thanks for your word. Just thanks for encouraging us through your word. May we see it. May we hear it. May may you cause us to believe it. Because sometimes in our own strength, we fail to believe it. But you're the one that gives us faith. You're the one that causes us to see it and to believe it. And so I trust you with that today. I pray for those that are going through the storm right now. Because I know it's happening in this room. I pray that they can keep their eyes on you. They can trust you. And they see how you get them through it. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.